0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, Your Salvation Story, with a message entitled, What Must I Do to Be Saved? So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 16 as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: There are a lot of questions that effectively begin with the words, what must I do? What must I do to minimalize my risk of colon cancer? And the answer is, you should go to an annual physical at your doctor. What must I do to become a millionaire? Now here, you know, whatever the answer there is to that question, I'm pretty sure it's not buy lottery tickets. You know, I think that buying lottery tickets is the answer to the question, what must I do to wantonly and needlessly throw my money away? But there are other questions. What must I do to get in great shape? What must I do to get into medical school? What must I do to change an unjust law in my country? You know, we ask questions like that because we know that as human beings, inaction gets us nowhere. We must act. Indeed, failure to act means that we're just not interested. Well, the same is true when it comes to our salvation. Even while I have argued that the new birth is an action that is done by God. I've also made it clear that there is something that we must do, and that takes us to Acts chapter 16. Paul has just arrived on the European continent. He set his foot on the European shore in a city named Neapolis, and then he's journeyed inland to another city named Philippi. And after winning the first convert to Christ in Europe, a woman named Lydia, Paul and his team then continue to meet with a group of women who are meeting for prayer just outside of the city. And on his way to the place of prayer, he's once met by a slave girl who is demon-possessed. Well, they cast the demon out of that girl, and the girl's owners become enraged. They've been making money off her through her demonic gift of fortune-telling. And so, to make a long story short, a riot ensues, and Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. You know, it's night, and the two men are praying and singing hymns to God. And suddenly, there's an earthquake, and that's not unusual, for that area is given to sudden and violent earthquakes, but in this case, the prison doors were opened and their chains were released. You know, in the ancient Roman world, for, you know, Philippi was a Roman city in Greece, while any jailer who loses his prisoners would be executed. And so because it's dark and the prison doors have become loose, the jailer drew his sword and was about to kill himself, wanting to escape the hands of a cruel executioner. But Paul cries out, we're here, don't harm yourself. And the jailer calls for lights and finds that it's exactly that way. His two prisoners are still there. What happens next is extraordinary. The jailer rushed into the cell and fell down before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out of the cell, and his first words to them were, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's remarkable because one has to imagine this man's religious and civic life. The Roman emperor Augustus had conferred the title Colony of Rome on the city of Philippi. The Philippians spoke mostly Greek, but they enjoyed the rights and privileges of Roman citizenship. A great many Roman military men had also retired there. And so the city was thoroughly Roman, especially in terms of its allegiance. I'll get to the point in just a moment, but hear me out. Religiously, like all the cities of the day, Philippi had numerous temples, and they worshipped the numerous Greco-Roman gods and goddesses. And along with a great many of these temples was a life of sensuality that these religions often provided. But one more thing. The city of Philippi housed a temple devoted to the imperial cult in which they worshipped the Roman emperor as a god. And here's where it gets really interesting. Caesar claimed that he was Lord and Savior, and he also claimed to bring salvation and peace to the world. Caesar was the hope of salvation for all who lived in Philippi, and and since this man was the jailer, well, he was entrusted with housing the prisoners, and we can be fairly certain that prisoners were thought of as the potential enemies both of Rome and of the salvation of Caesar. I hope you see that this guy has not been hanging out in the local Baptist or Pentecostal church, and then he says, what must I do to be saved? Look, he's a man who was raised in the salvation of the god Caesar. Now, we have to assume, however, that this jailer has heard Paul preach in the city of Philippi, and the ideas he preached must have made some kind of an impact on him. And then we have to assume he was there when the city went into a riot and the magistrates ordered that Paul and Silas were beaten with rods and that's when this jailer received them as his prisoners. And all that night he heard their prayers and he listened as the two men sang. And then when the two men refused to use the advantage of an earthquake to get away and instead showed concern for this jailer, well, the jailer wanted to know what he needed to do to be saved. So saved from what? Well, certainly not from death. We can say that with assurance because these men didn't run away. The jailer's physical life had already been saved and certainly couldn't have meant saved from other enemies. I mean, after all, that was the salvation that, that Caesar had already offered the citizens of that city. And this is the key. This man would intuitively have known the concept of salvation. And since we know that the book of Romans is what Paul preached everywhere he went, we've got to believe that this man had heard Paul at least on one occasion saying, you know, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth of the one God, and so consequently they're lost in sin. And we have to assume. That Paul has been proclaiming the cross of Jesus, whom Paul calls the propitiation for our sins, or, you know, in our language, as the offering of God, who bears the sins of men and bears the wrath of God against our sins. See, I have to assume that this jailer has heard all of that. And that night, as Paul and Silas are praying and singing, there in the dark, he's listening right until the earthquake hits. Now, my reason for discussing this matter is because if you've heard me speaking about the new birth, the new heart that God places in those whom he chooses, well, you might have said to yourself, well, I'm nowhere near that. I I know that my heart is dead to God, and, and if I'm dead to God, well, I guess I'm lost, and my soul is in mortal danger. And I've got to assume this jailer came to the same conclusion. But he also hears from Paul's preaching that men and women can be justified or they can be declared righteous before God through the cross of Jesus Christ. That is, he hears that Christ has died for the sins of people. Again, notice the response. He doesn't say, well, you know, since the new birth is God's doing and there's nothing I can do about that, so I guess I don't have it and I know that God's able to save me from my sins, but I'm not saved so far, so I guess there it is. No, no, that's not what he says. He's amazed that he has been saved from death by Paul and Silas. They didn't escape from jail and now he wants to know how he can be saved from the judgment that is to come. So what must I do, he says, not what has God done? Now, I assume he's already heard that. Rather, I know I must act, that if I'm going to be saved, I must do something. So what is it? So let's read Luke's description of this encounter, and it's found in Acts 16, 29-34. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, I notice that there is an immediate response from Paul and Silas. They didn't have to say, wow, you know, this question about what must I do, well, that's a tough question. I mean, give us a moment to think about that. Listen, instead, we noticed that this is an answer that these men knew better than anything else, and their answer was immediate. And I also noticed that the answer was not, well, you have to simply wait on God to change your heart. After all, God is sovereign and he elects his own. No, they don't say that. Paul and Silas knew that the question they were asked is a legitimate question, because there really was something that this man needed to do. And if if he didn't do this one thing, he would not be saved from the righteous judgment of God. I also noticed that the answer is actually well, it's quite simple. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus. See, that's a command. This is what you must do. You must believe in the Lord Jesus. I'm gonna talk about what that means in just a moment, but please notice how simple the command is. Not try to change yourself, but believe in Jesus. That's the command. And with that command comes an amazing promise. If you believe, you will be saved. That's simple. Let me repeat it. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. That's an ironclad promise. That's the difference between heaven and hell. It's that simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved.
0: This month, check out Truth In Life today as Dr. John Newfeld teaches the Book of Romans. Nothing could be more important than understanding these critical principles of faith that the Apostle Paul brings to us, and remember, Beginning this month, Truth in Life Today is being released on Vision TV Sundays at 12.30 Eastern. There's a lot more ahead as Dr. Newfeld invites pastors, authors, and Christian leaders into the studio to discuss some of the most important issues of life and faith. And remember, you can also listen to or view Truth in Life Today's current episode or one of its previous episodes by visiting backtothebible.ca by downloading the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app or by subscribing to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. For more information or to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Conversion is our response to the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. not saved by getting right with God. I want to say this clearly because, you know, sometimes I hear people encourage others, you know, you got to get right with God. And then I hear the response, well, I'm trying. That, my friends, is not the gospel. So here's the issue. You need to be saved, but saved from what? Listen, you need to be saved from sin, to be sure. Sin is rebellion against God that is at work in you. But let's also be clear, you need to be saved from the judgment that is coming on the whole earth. God, the righteous one, will call every single human being to account, and your track record and my track record only condemns us. We need to be saved from the judgment of God to come. We also need to be saved from the lies of our world that tell us that salvation exists either in politics or salvation exists in gaining power for ourselves or salvation exists in gaining money so that we can purchase whatever we want or salvation exists in having all of our dreams fulfilled. Look, there is no salvation in politics or in military might or in becoming famous and admired or in becoming the wealthiest person on the planet. And furthermore, there is no salvation in yourself. Your flesh will betray you. And even though you propose moral reform for yourself, you say, you know, I'm going to keep the commands of God. I'm going to stop offending God. But listen, in time, your flesh will reassert itself and you will lose the battle to please God. See, if this is my condition, what must I do to be saved? And the answer, if you wish to be saved, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Does it mean that I simply believe the truths about who Jesus is? Now, in order to answer that, let's be well-defined. It is necessary that we have some knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done. Paul says that much in Romans 10:14 when he asks the question, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? See, when Paul says that, it's a part of his call to missions. If the Philippian jailer had not heard about who Jesus is and what Jesus had done, Paul's response would have been meaningless. So we have to assume that the jailer heard that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, that he is Lord or ruler of heaven and earth. And it is for this reason that I love Philippians 1.13, you know, Paul in, in later years while he was in prison then in Rome. Oh, you know, I can almost imagine the Philippian jailer. He's now a believer. He's a member of the church in Philippi, and he gets the letter from Paul from his Roman prison. And Paul writes, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Well, you can almost imagine, you know, it's years later, the Philippian jailer, he's a believer, sitting in a pew, he perks up in church when those words are read from the apostle. He probably leaned over and said to his wife, well, there he goes again. Those Roman jailers, well, they don't know who they got when that prisoner showed up. But from my reading of Philippians 1.13, that the translators of our English Bible have not given us the best translation. See, I don't think Paul meant to say that everyone has heard that his imprisonment is for Christ. You know, if that's all that he was saying, it wouldn't have been that remarkable, That would be like saying, you know, I'm being imprisoned because of my activity in preaching the gospel. Well, the person in prison next to him could have said, well, you know, I'm in prison for leading an insurrection. And the next one said, well, I'm in prison for stealing. I mean, everyone was in prison for something. No, the Greek that Paul uses is most often translated as in and not for. That is, I think Paul is saying, I have let everyone know that my imprisonment is in Christ. That is, it was not Caesar who sent me here. No, no, I'm here because Jesus Christ sent me here. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord, and he sends me wherever I go. Now, I say all this because that's the message Paul preached, and that also tells us that to believe in Jesus has got to mean at least two things. We believe that he is the Son of God, that he is one with the Father, that he is Lord of heaven and earth, who in mercy came to earth. And secondly, we also believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That is, his death is an atoning sacrifice. He is an offering to God for our sins. He died for us. Now, surely believing in Jesus has to include that. But, and this is key, Knowing the facts of Jesus and believing them to be true, and even agreeing with those facts is not enough. How do I know that? Well, I know that from numerous places in the Bible. In John 2, 23, we read that many believed in Jesus, but in the very next verse, John tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. We might also look at Acts 26, verse 27. Paul has been preaching to King Agrippa, and Paul says, I know that you believe. He means, I know that you don't doubt one word of what I'm saying. Paul was right about that. And yet in verse 28, Agrippa says, in a short time, you think to make me a Christian? You see, he believed, but not unto salvation. In order to believe in Jesus to be saved, well, it's got to be a personal faith. That is, you must trust in Jesus for your salvation. You must give up on every other means of saving yourself, and you must decide now to depend on Christ alone to save you. That's personal. It's a personal faith. It's a personal trust. It involves throwing yourself onto the Lord Jesus. Now, now I know that as we grow in Christ, that our trust in Christ then begins to extend to all of life. That's why Paul can go to prison and be confident that, you know, Jesus sent him there. Trust in Jesus extends also to the hope of our salvation, to the second coming of our Lord. It involves growing in our understanding of the nature of Jesus. We begin to know that He is both fully God and fully man, that He is the second person of the three persons who are the one God, and that He has fulfilled the entirety of the the Old Testament. I, I mean, the things we learn about Jesus and the places in our lives that we begin to trust in Jesus grow throughout all of our Christian lives. You will learn what it means to be adopted into the family of God. You will learn to live life within the context of a believing community, His church. You will learn of the Spirit's work of sanctification. You will learn how your salvation will be complete when you receive your new resurrected body and are glorified, finally having put aside sin forever. Yeah, there's so much to learn. And there's so many areas of life where you can grow. But the initial act of saving faith, that is, believing in Jesus unto salvation, listen, that's a very personal matter, and it's intimate. I think of the one thief on the cross being crucified next to Jesus. His friend was also being crucified, and he's mocking Jesus. Come down off your cross, he says. But the other looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What kind of faith does he have? Well, for one, he already confessed that he was a sinner because he said, I'm only getting what I deserve. And he knows that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is inheriting the kingdom of God. Save me, he says. Remember me. Show me mercy. I beg you. That's saving faith. It's personal faith. I don't know how to explain it other than to say that saving faith takes the intellectual truths of the gospel and those truths become remarkably intimate and personal. We're like the Roman centurion described in in Matthew 8, verse 8, who said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof or into my house. Or like Peter, who said in Luke 5, verse 8, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. That is, we're overwhelmed by Jesus' holiness, and we're overwhelmed by our own sinfulness. Jesus, I'm not worthy of you, but would you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? Conversion is personal. It's intimate. It's the soul crying out to Jesus himself in which we, not hiding our own sin, come to him and say, save me, I'm a wicked man. You know, when my own father lay on his deathbed, he wanted his tombstone to read, here lies a great sinner who was saved by Jesus. Dad wanted it stated to anyone who happened by his grave that this man had no hope for eternity, but that he had trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone was able to save him. Let's get back to the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas instruct him to believe in the Lord Jesus, and then they add, you and your household. And so, realizing that he's not the only one that needed to be saved, the jailer took Paul and Silas into his house that night, and they washed and treated their wounds. And then he said, tell my household what you've told me. And that's what the household heard. Luke tells us that the jailer's household also believed, and they were baptized. So, let me get personal. Let me ask you, my friend, since we must all appear before the judgment, on what basis are you hoping? Will you say, I've done my best and I think that will do? Or will you say, I was raised in church and I was baptized and, you know, I frequently pray to God and I do the best I can. See, if that's what you think, there's no hope for you. But if today you say, all my righteous deeds are filthy rags, but I trust in Jesus Christ to save me, you have been born again.
0: John, the forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternity. I mean, what do you think holds people back from salvation?
1: Yeah, I think this um, needing a Savior, uh, the word Savior means I'm drowning. I'm i am not doing well. I, I can't save myself. And, you know, for many people I know in the pseudo-religious world say, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And so, you know, there builds in people this pride that I'm really not as sinful and as helpless as, you know, as the gospel makes me out to be. And yet here, um, you know, clearly, Um, you need to be saved. I mean, the Philippian jailer knows that, he needs to be saved, he's undone, he's got nothing to commend himself. If someone doesn't come in and rescue him, he's lost. And I think this belittling of human pride is the biggest issue before us, Ben. There is nothing greater than that. But once that happens, how wonderful a savior.
0: Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Your Salvation Story, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Next month, Dr. Newfeld and a ministry team from Back to the Bible Canada will be traveling to India to join the ministry team of Back to the Bible India to conduct two Bible teaching conferences in Delhi and Hyderabad. Two conferences will be held hosting hundreds of pastors representing multiple denominations and churches. Through these conferences, the hearts of these people will grow in their ability to study and effectively teach God's Word. Your gift this month toward these conferences in India would allow us to maximize the impact of our partnership with Back to the Bible India. Your gift would support pastors' participation and support the ongoing radio and online Bible teaching programs aired in India and across much of the surrounding region in Asia. Invest in Back to the Bible Canada's international ministries today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.